am Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. This is a special episode of Sorry Not Sorry focused entirely on the developing military situation in Iran. It's such an unnecessary mess. Remember that three years ago we had a working peace and nuclear disarmament treaty there. Now we're at the brink of war. I wanted to take the time to get in depth into the situation both historically and politically to help us all understand what's happening and what we can do about it. Later in the show, we'll hear from Congressman Ro Khanna and Senator Chris Murphy. But first, I want to share my conversation with my friend Arwa Damon. Arwa is a senior international correspondent for CNN. She's based in Istanbul and has been covering the Middle East in depth since 2003. Arwa has been on the front lines in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, bringing us brilliant and heart-wrenching coverage of the ongoing wars in these nations and the human toll. She's also the co-founder of Inara, an organization dedicated to providing critically needed medical treatments to refugee children from Syria. A rocket attack on the Baghdad airport kills Iran's most revered military leader, and a senior official in Iraq's paramilitary forces. We begin with that violent attack on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Dozens of protesters stormed the compound in Baghdad. This is the night Iran struck back for the death of Soleimani. Seven months. That's how long ago the strike against Qasem Soleimani was authorized. President Trump lashing out at a rally in Ohio last night after the House voted largely along party lines, but not completely, to stop him from taking further military action against Iran without approval from Congress. I'm Marwa Damon, and I believe that we need to figure out how to fix our moral compass. Sorry, not sorry. So, Arwa, you've spent basically years, how many years, covering conflicts in the Middle East? Since 2003, I got to Baghdad a few weeks before the war started, so a very long time. I mean, there are so many parts and moving parts and involved parties from states like Iran and the U.S. to non-state actors, right, like ISIS and Hezbollah. It is hard, to say the least, I think, for the average person to keep everything straight. So can you maybe give us a beginner's overview of all the players and how they intersect? Wow, yeah, it's a very complicated region. And I actually think one of America's biggest downfalls when trying to approach the region and take actions in the region has been consecutive administrations' historical inability to understand a lot of these dynamics and really understand how a lot of the population interacts with one another, how various different kinds of governments interact with the populations. And then, of course, 
the role that all of these armed groups play, and they are armed groups which increased significantly in number after the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. And what you have today in Iraq, for example, is the birthplace of a lot of these groups, whether we're talking about the predecessors of ISIS or whether we're talking about any number of Shia militias who exist as a direct product of the U.S.-led invasion, to those who have been around for a lot longer, like, yes, Hezbollah in Lebanon and any number of other groups. And then you have all of this external influence coming into play. So you have the Iranians, you have the Syrian regime, you have the Russians, you have the Americans, you have the Israelis, you have the Saudis, you have the Gulf countries. And what you really see in Iraq is actually the proxy battlefield between the majority of all of these other forces. And it exists in Iraq to a much greater degree than it does in any of the other countries who themselves are, yes, also proxy battlefields like Syria, but it really is in Iraq where you have all of the main actors, whether it's government or armed groups or whatever you want to call them, who really have penetrated that country to such a degree that the Iraqi population, which has been fighting to have a voice, has really long ago lost to say in its future. And I think that is really the biggest tragedy of all of it. So while it's really hard to keep track of who's who, what's what, who's attacking who, who's blowing up whom, I think for the average listener, it's really important to know that the vast majority of the people who are living the effects of circumstances over which they have no control, they are among the kindest, most compassionate, most resilient, worthy of admiration individuals that I have ever met. Oh, it breaks my heart. And just to think of all you've witnessed in the suffering happening during the many years in the region. CNN senior international correspondent Arwa Damon is the first journalist to gain access to that airbase. Humanitarian organizations are warning Syria is on the brink of a nightmare. Those who are living it will tell you that that nightmare began a long time ago. There's nowhere to turn. It's so claustrophobic. And every car here, every garbage can, could be a bomb. Our MRAP takes a direct hit. They shout over each other about the government's use of force, their friends who were killed in the demonstrations, the injustice. This targeting of Qasem Soleimani and of the head of Kata'ib Hezbollah really puts us right now, Victor, in uncharted territory. From the government's perspective, these strikes by the United States were not against a pro-Iranian militia. They were actually against their own forces as well. The prime minister yesterday saying that the strikes also wounded um, some policemen and also wounded uh, some Iraqi soldiers. Can you maybe put a really human element on if this conflict turns into a full-fledged war or some form of proxy conflict, what will it look like for the civilians there? Can you paint that picture a little bit? It'll look very ugly. And that actually is what really broke my heart the most over the last two weeks. About two years ago, a year and a half ago, for the first time since 2003, I and my crew were able to sit outside 
in Baghdad coffee shops and restaurants and not be afraid of being attacked. Mm-hmm. And I say that to give you an idea of just how volatile Iraq was. People forget that during the period of you know, 2004 to about 2008, 9, 10, everyone was being targeted by something. Mm-hmm. Iraqis who worked with, you know, foreign journalists were being targeted. Iraqis who worked with foreigners were being targeted. You know, Sunnis were being targeted by Shia militias. The Shia population was being targeted by Al-Qaeda in Iraq and then ISIS. And in the capital Baghdad, you always sort of had to live your life as an Iraqi to a certain degree behind closed doors. So those joyous moments that you see of, you know, people running up to each other on the street and hugging and all of the the festivities that surround, say, a birthday or a wedding, that would always happen very quietly and behind closed doors. But the last two years, sort of post-ISIS, to a certain degree, that really shifted and the capital was beginning to change. I mean, yes, it was something of a bubble. It wasn't necessarily reflective of the security situation in the rest of the country, but at the very least in the capital itself, there was a vein of of hope that I have never seen in Iraq. And when all of this started unfolding over the last two weeks, it completely and totally shattered that. It shattered this sort of veneer of security that Iraqis had been desperate for. Because, again, going back to those years, for people who don't remember, there was a period of time in 2006 and 2007 where every day there were more than 100, 100 unidentified, mutilated bodies showing up on the streets of Baghdad. People used to crowd into the morgue that had this macabre video screen up that would just show mutilated body after mutilated body and they would be there looking for any sign of their loved one. That's what Iraq went through. And Iraq is not stable enough to be able to withstand being a proxy battlefield for powers like America and Iran. Can you maybe discuss a little bit about the difference in perspective from how Middle Eastern citizens viewed America before the strike on Soleimani versus after? Look, it's very hard to generalize, obviously, about single populations. But I think broadly speaking across the Middle East, there is this sense that America will always put its own interests first. America will always do what it wants. And America very rarely ends up paying the consequences for its destabilizing actions. There is, however, a differentiation that is made among many people between the U.S. government and the U.S. people. You can talk to someone who has a rabid hatred of the American government, and not just the Trump administration, but successive governments, but who does not necessarily extrapolate that to being a hatred of the American people. And at the same time, and this is something that's quite fascinating, is that even though there is so little trust in America because of its continuous missteps in the region, because of quite literally the chaos it brings in its wake whenever it gets involved in anything in the region. There is still this sense among people, no matter how badly America has betrayed them, that one day America 
is going to live up to the image that it portrays. Mm. That one day, perhaps America will actually come in and save them and do the right thing and support the right government or support the population that's out there, you know, demonstrating in the streets for democracy. But with each time of America's betrayal or even perceived betrayal, a little bit of that gets eroded. He says all they want is to be heard. Stop the killing, he pleads. Listen to what they want. Send someone from the government to say, I am here to talk to you. What do you need? Well, I feel like hope is really the thing that connects all of us. And I think that there's even people in this country who have hope that America will live up to its its dream and the ideal. Too many people are being left behind, even American citizens. You were the first journalist to get access to the base in Iraq. And really, you had the global exclusive, which, you know, which is amazing. And you saw the demonstrations, right, at the U.S. Embassy after the killing and the demonstrations in Iran against that government after the Ukrainian passenger uh, jet was shot down. So how do the citizens of Iran view their own government? You know, Iran, and I've never been to Iran, is a very difficult country to begin to try to understand because access to it is very difficult. And when journalists are given access to it, their movements are very restricted. Mm. So one of my colleagues was able to report from Tehran, but where he can go and what he can report on ends up being restricted. Very similar to Iraq under Saddam Hussein, very Mm -hmm. similar Mm -hmm. to Syria under Bashar al-Assad sort of thing. When we try to report on these anti-government protests in Iran, we're heavily relying on demonstrators on the ground who literally risk their lives to take videos and get those videos out. And because the Iranian government doesn't want people to see what's happening, there are often massive countrywide internet blackouts. So we never really know 100% what's happening there because we're being blocked from witnessing it. But we do end up being able to, a certain degree, put together pieces of a picture. And I think, broadly speaking, when we look at the demonstrations that do take place in Iran, there is a significant chunk of the population that wants change. And each time, and this has been happening for years, Elizabeth, each time they go out to the street and they demand change, that crackdown comes down like a hammer. Mm-hmm. And eventually it disperses, but they always keep coming back again. What was fascinating with the more recent protests is this perception that perhaps a level of barrier of fear has been broken and people who are going out to the streets might be believing that they have nothing left to lose. The calls that they're making against the Ayatollah, the calls that they're making against the government, it is significant, even if it's one voice, that that one voice is making such a direct call. Mm. against a government or an individual who is deemed to be untouchable. So you have that happening on the one hand, but equally, you have to look at what happened in the wake of the killing of Qasem Soleimani and his funeral. And as you know, people were coming out to mourn that in incredibly large numbers. And we risk to a certain degree when we look at this from the outside to try to put everything into black and white. So There is the assumption, perhaps, that because an individual 
is against the Iranian government, that they would somehow support the United States carrying out a targeted killing right. of General Qasem Soleimani. But those two things should not be conflated. You know, when I heard the news, I just shocked, shocked, completely shocked. And uh, because General Soleimani was a very important person in Iran. It was crazy to see U.S. officially say, we killed him. I was very, very happy to hear that. This guy had a lot, a lot of lot of people in his hands, so that was wonderful news. He was, um, you know, he was a person early in the revolution. He killed many of Kurdish people in Iran. He killed a lot of Iranians. He was in charge of uh, destroying the dissidents in Iraq. A lot of Iraqis on the flip side of this, a lot of Iraqis who I was talking to, will have no love for Iran, none. They have no love for Qasem Soleimani or what the proxy militias that he's worked with in Iraq have done to their own country. But they also have no support for America carrying out that killing on Iraqi soil. Mm -hmm. So when we look at and try to look at this from, you know, black and white, you know, supporting one side must automatically mean you know, being against the other, that's when we risk, I think, oversimplifying people's emotions in a very complex situation. When policy decisions are made on an oversimplification of emotion, that's when you end up in an even bigger mess. What do you think needs to happen as far as policy goes in that region? You know, it's, it's a tough one. And there's a lot of big decisions that have to be made right now. And there's a lot of mistakes that have been made. I think the U.S. needs to somehow shift its approach in general, and its mindset towards the region. And again, this isn't just a Trump administration phenomenon. Right. But the U.S. tends to look at the Middle East as something that it can continue to manipulate or meddle in without having a true understanding of the region. Successive administrations have surrounded themselves mostly with advisors who have a very superficial understanding of what's happening. They get very easily duped by, say, you know, a senior-ranking Iraqi who will very cleverly tell a senior-ranking U.S. official exactly what that U.S. official wants to hear mm. and, you know, play them like a fiddle. And this Iraqi will get away with that because he will dress in a Western manner. He will speak English with a non-offensive accent. And all of a sudden, the thinking on the American side is, oh, this person must have the same perspective as we do. It's not that simple. And I'm giving this example because I've actually seen this happening time and time and time again. There are American officials who have spent time in the region, who have spent time in Iraq and Syria and other places who do have a profound understanding of what's happening. And if we look back in history over the last 15 years, at every moment when the U.S. could have come out and done the right thing, successive administrations did not. Mm. So I think there needs to be a whole shift in how the Middle East is viewed. And I think there also needs to be a significantly greater degree of respect for the Middle East and a greater degree of respect for lives in that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, a greater respect for humanity across the board, I think, is what we all fight for and long for. Do you have any hope for a peaceful resolution, not just not just with this new flare-up, but just the ongoing generational conflict between the United States and Western countries against the nations of the Middle East? You know, I, I pendulum on that one. I, I really do pendulum on that one. So 
you know, the, the last two weeks, so just for a bit of sort of background on it. So we had those protests and those protesters who were trying to storm the U.S. embassy. Now, they're not your average protester. Those people who are out there are either members of or supporters of these Shia paramilitary units that were established um, post-ISIS to stop ISIS basically reaching the gates of Baghdad. And they were infuriated, this is before the strike on Qasem Soleimani, they were infuriated at the United States because the U.S. had just carried out airstrikes on a number of their bases in Iraq and Syria. Mm. The U.S. had done that in retaliation for a strike on an American base that killed a U.S. contractor. But they already, before the strike on Qasem Soleimani, were demanding, and this was a precondition for their pulling back from the U.S. embassy, that the Iraqi government basically end foreign troop presence in Iraq. With the Qasem Soleimani strike, I mean, parliament all of a sudden was stuck in a position where at least its Shia membership didn't have a choice but to pass that vote to ask foreign forces to leave. And in the day following the Qasem Soleimani strike, I could not see hope because of just the situation Iraq was finding itself in and the tit-for-tat battlefield it was becoming. And then, of course, Iran responded by hitting you know, the U.S. airbase up at al-Assad and right. very lucky that there were no U.S. casualties. I mean, America was not ready and was not able to defend itself against that kind of a ballistic missile strike. So when I look at all of that, I find it very hard to find hope. But then at the same time, I went down to the Baghdad protest ground because there have actually been demonstrations happening in Baghdad for months right now. And these are demonstrations that are calling for a change in government, an end to corruption. They want to completely, you know, revamp the constitution. They want an end to all foreign influence, whether it's American or Iranian. And it's a very young demonstration. This is Iraq's youth that are fed up with accepting the status quo. And they want jobs. They want working electricity. And they are Ordinary. The energy that's down there and the way these young minds work and think and how despite the fact that over, you know, the months that they've been out there, they were getting shot at, they were getting killed either directly, you know, targeted by snipers or tear gas being used as a lethal weapon. Hundreds of them have died and they didn't give up. They didn't back down. And families take their kids out there. Going down there to that Baghdad protest site that gave me hope again for the country. Again, you know, this is, I think, the tragedy of not just Iraq, but a lot of governments, is you go into these situations and you say to yourself, like, if these people that I'm seeing right here, right now, were just given a chance, this country could be extraordinary. And then it's quite crushing to realize that for them to get that chance, they are going to have to fight and bleed so much more because those who are holding on to power, those who are stirring the pots of chaos have vested interest in that and they're not going to let go of it easily. Congressman Ro Khanna has been representing California's 17th district since 2017. He's got a long history in international relations, serving as President Obama's Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Department of Commerce, where he oversaw international trade missions. He now sits on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Oversight Committee. I had an amendment 
two months ago in the National Defense Authorization Act that would have prohibited any strike on Iran, any strike on any Iranian official. It would have prevented the Soleimani assassination. We'll be introducing on Tuesday a bipartisan amendment with a lot of support from Hask, the House Armed Services Committee, to make sure that the president has to come to Congress before taking any military action. Do not give a blank check to the Pentagon for $738 billion without a restriction and a commitment that they won't go into Iran. Now, does anyone believe that the Pentagon would have given the Soleimani killing as an option if they hadn't gotten their $738 billion? Uh, President Trump has put American security at risk uh, and has really been irresponsible. I would make two points. First, the compromise of national security. He pulled out our troops from the region, and as a result, a lot of ISIS prisoners uh, have been released. And these folks could be threats now uh, to our interests and to the United States. I think the president wants his legacy to be to start another war in the Middle East that costs trillions of dollars. I mean, he ran against that, but he has got advisors, Pompeo and Bolton, who are itching for war. I think Bolton has wanted a war with Iran for the last 25 years. Congressman Khanna, thank you so much for your time in talking to us. I know it's very valuable as you fight to save our country. So I just want to dive right in. There's a long history of U.S. involvement in Iran, starting with the CIA-sponsored coup of the Shah in the 1950s, running through the Iran hostage crisis in the 70s, the Iran-Contra scandal of the 80s, the Iran-Iraq war, obviously, of the 80s and the 90s, and just the Middle East conflicts of the last three decades. So can you just describe to me who is Soleimani and how does he fit into the Iranian power structure and, frankly, international terrorism? I appreciate your reciting that history. Look, Soleimani obviously had blood on his hands. I mean, he was involved at a very senior level uh, with the Iranian military, with the Quds Force. And one of the things that they were uh, involved with is supporting the debathification of Iraq. So after we toppled uh, Saddam Hussein, one of our strategic mistakes that Paul Bremer made was to say that anyone who was part of Saddam's party could no longer have a part of government, and that was a Sunni uh, government. And Soleimani, because he was part of Iran and the Shiites, basically was working with the Shiites in Iraq uh, to uh, help with the debathification and the killing off of some of the Sunnis there. And in fact, in some cases, he worked with the United States in the fight against ISIS. Uh, But he also didn't like the fact that the United States still had a presence there. Uh, He was concerned about the maximum pressure campaign that we were imposing, and he's never been for the United States. And he's had been involved in many different uh, initiatives against the United States. So he, he was clearly a bad actor. Okay, so then if he was a bad actor, why is it so controversial to have him killed? Oh, because we don't have a view in the United States that you can have political assassinations of the number two or number three person in another country, uh, especially without a declaration of war. I mean, can the president then just go kill Kim Jong-un in North Korea or kill anyone who he or she thinks is a bad actor? I mean, that would be uh, setting a very dangerous precedent. What we have is a requirement to come to Congress. 
And the reason that George W. Bush and that Barack Obama never went killed Soleimani is they feared the escalation and tension, and they thought ultimately would make Americans less safe. So Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says that Soleimani was planning an imminent attack, but hasn't released any of the details of when or where that attack was coming from. And now news reports say that Trump authorized this killing more than six months ago. I mean, that doesn't sound very imminent to me. How imminent does an attack need to be for the president to authorize military action without Congress? And how does this all play into the narrative that they have given us about why they assassinated Soleimani? You're absolutely right, Alyssa. I mean, the news came out that the president had given the order seven months ago to kill Soleimani if needed. And, uh, you know, the, the accounts are all over the place with the administration. I mean, the president went on Fox News and said four or our embassies were under threat. And then Secretary Esper says, no, he's not aware of any intelligence saying that four embassies were under threat. They haven't been able to even provide the basics. Where was the threat? What was the location? What was the time? What was it going to hit? That's not compromising sensitive intelligence to tell the American people where the attack was going to happen and when. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. Evidence that that Qassam Soleimani was preparing an imminent attack against American forces and American personnel also represents some of the most sensitive intelligence that we have. It, It could compromise those sources and methods. He was going after, in our opinion, in our very intelligent opinion. He was going after our embassies and things could have happened. We had the exact opposite to Benghazi. There were a series of imminent attacks that were being plotted by Qasem Soleimani. We don't know precisely when and we don't know precisely where. What is your definition of imminent? This was going to happen and American lives were at risk. Apparently nobody in Baghdad was told of this. Why was that? Well, this is a very fast-moving situation. If General Soleimani was targeting four embassies, why weren't those embassies alerted? Why weren't they evacuated? Well, listen, we're not going to cut and run every time somebody threatens us. Were those four embassies alerted that there was a threat to them? All the embassies were alerted. The president never said there was specific intelligence to four different embassies. He said he believed it. And and I believed it, too. He didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed... Are you saying there wasn't one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. Look, what happened is that Soleimani killed a lot of Americans. There are people in our government who've held this against him for many years, and they wanted to take him out. People like John Bolton and others, they've, uh, you know, held a grudge against Iran since the hostage crisis. And they've been itching for, for a president to give them the order to take Soleimani out, and Trump did. Well, the president has suggested, and by suggested, I mean tweeted, With that dangerous, dangerous Twitter feed, he has suggested that he has a long list of targets inside Iran, including cultural sites. And, you know, international law prohibits intentional attacks of places of cultural importance. So, I mean, what does Congress do if President Trump does violate international law and attack these sites? We are in new territory. I mean, it was George W. Bush who got ratified the 1954 Hague Convention on Cultural Property that prohibits strikes on uh, any cultural targets. That happened in 2008. And I think what Trump, I mean, he engages in this bluster, what he thinks is bluster, but what he doesn't realize is it's one thing if he was a New York developer engaged in that kind of talk. 
It's another thing when he's the president of the United States, and those type of comments actually directly can lead to retaliation, to violence, to American personnel being at risk. These used to be living quarters. This is where the troops would sleep, at least one of the areas. There is almost nothing left, nothing that was salvageable, we were told. Being here, it's truly extraordinary how anyone managed to survive, that there were no casualties. The U.S. military now says several Americans were injured in Iran's attack on U.S. troops last week, despite earlier claims that no one was hurt. So that's why Senator Sanders and I have an amendment, a bill that would defund any offensive strike in Iran. And that's how we ended the Vietnam War. It was Senator Church who defunded any money going to troops in Vietnam. And that's why Nixon was forced to wind down the war. So Congress does have the power of the purse and we need to exercise it. Congressman, you and I talk a lot about the importance of activism and advocacy work. And I'm wondering, what can people at home listening right now who feel overwhelmed, what can we do to support your bill with Senator Sanders to get more information? You know, sit up at night and I stress about all of this. The only thing that makes me feel better is action. What can people do? Well, the activism makes a big difference. Uh, And the reason it makes a difference is that Congress still remains the most powerful branch on war and peace. It's just happened that members of Congress haven't wanted to exercise our responsibility. We've been fine post 9-11 giving that responsibility to the president so we don't look, quote unquote, weak on terror. I think what people have to demand is that their members of Congress take a stand, that their members of Congress restrict this president's ability to have funding to go to war, that members of Congress repeal the authorization of force military force, Barbara Lee's bill, would repeal it, that was given in 2001. I mean, think about that. We have an authorization given in 2001 and 2002, and we're going to war in the year 2020 based on that. Let's repeal that authorization. That's what people can do. And, you know, a lot of times foreign policy doesn't come up in members' town halls. I mean, when I am at a town hall, I mean, people care about their traffic. They care about the cost of housing. They care about education care about uh, noise pollution or actual pollution. But a lot of times people think, oh, Iran, that's so distant, uh, or the AUMF, that's so technical. But the reality is our country has spent trillions of dollars on these wars, and we all know people who have served and their lives are at risk. Uh, And so until people speak out and demand that their members of Congress act, nothing will change. The House voted to limit presidential war powers in Iran in a bipartisan way. And this may be a rare issue during this administration where the House and the Senate actually have some common ground. What do you think is going to happen there? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that Senator Kane's war powers resolution passes. But I think what will happen is Trump will veto it and then disregard it. And so the real check on the president is the power of the purse. That's why we end up, we have to not only say that what he's doing is wrong, which is what the war powers does, but then we have to say we aren't going to fund it if he continues with any of that action. Ashura in Tehran. Many here say it's time to stand against what they see as the injustice of President Donald Trump. 
He's insane. He's an insane person. We have to stand up to him. But Iranians are not just religious conservatives. Millions of young liberals live here too, many shaped by American culture. Trump just forces his way on everyone. Of course, everyone gets worried. It feels like something big is about to happen again. Things could get worse. We have to be ready for it. It feels like we've had generations of conflict with Iran. How, how do we get out of it? What do we need to do to mend this? Well, we had a solution. President Obama had a once-in-a-generation chance for peace in the Middle East. And his solution was predicated on a nuclear deal with Iran that uh, when it was implemented, Iran had no strikes against America. We didn't see Iran protesting our embassies back then. We didn't see Iran launching rocket attacks against America. Obama was trying to normalize the relationship. So what we need to do is get back in that framework. We need an immediate ceasefire in terms of violence and a negotiation with Iran to get that immediate ceasefire. We do need to demand transparency on their awful, outrageous shooting down of the civilian aircraft and, and make sure that they're being transparent in that investigation and people are being brought to justice. Then we need to consider withdrawal of our troops strategically from that region. They aren't serving any purpose other than putting us at risk. And then we need to get out of the maximum pressure campaign that we're putting on Iran and start to get back into the nuclear agreement. And I think if we took those corrective steps, we may be able to get back to where Obama left us. I, I don't even know what to say anymore. It just feels like everything is so insurmountable, especially, you know, when we're dealing with not only a president that seems to make the wrong choices, but also an entire administration that backs up those choices. Well, there's no coherence. If Obama hadn't made the progress he did in Iran, I think Trump may have a totally different view. His whole policy is motivated by undoing Obama. I mean, on the one hand, he's willing to negotiate with North Korea, which I support with Kim Jong-un. But that's because probably Obama didn't make progress there. But basically, this is just a policy of let's reverse Obama. There's no coherence to it. And it's totally inconsistent with how he campaigned of getting us out of the Middle East and ending these endless wars. Do you think that he forgot about all of those videos and tweets he sent out about Obama's presidency and Trump saying, well, now Obama's going to start a war with Iran to get reelected. Do you think he forgot about those? Do you think he just thinks that the American people are dumb? What do you think is going on there? I don't know. I mean, I do think he believes people have a short memory and that it's about winning the news cycle and oh, staying in the news cycle. But, you know, he's been so inconsistent in how he campaigned. He campaigned to help working families and the forgotten Americans. And he's had tax policies that have helped the very wealthy. He campaigned on stopping these endless wars. We've escalated troops into the Middle East. We've escalated conflict with Iran, with Venezuela. He campaigned on saying he was going to clean up the swamp, but we've got more influence of special interests and lobbyists than ever. So at, at some point, the question is whether his record will catch up with his rhetoric. And if people care. I don't know that people necessarily care. And that no. is the scariest part of it. I think that support is slipping in some of those battleground states where people haven't seen their jobs come back. They haven't seen the opioid crisis be addressed. They haven't seen enough progress. But it will be up for us to make that case, and it's going to be a hard-fought campaign. Well, I sleep better knowing that you are on our side. Thank you so much, Congressman. 
Well, thank you, Alyssa. Thank you for all your activism and particularly your help in stopping the Yemen war and now your activism to help prevent a war in Iran. Chris Murphy is a United States senator from Connecticut. He's held that position since 2013, handily winning re-election in 2018. Prior to that, he was a congressman for Connecticut's 5th District. He sits on the Senate Appropriations Committee and the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. His experience and insights into this situation are so, so valuable. We're joined now by Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who is on the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, do you believe that there was an imminent attack? Well, first, it's incumbent upon the administration to present that evidence to Congress. But even if there was an imminent attack, and there are always threats being presented to U.S. forces in the region by Iran and Iranian proxies, the responsibility is on the administration to prove to us that by taking out the second most powerful political figure inside Iran, they are preventing more attacks rather than inspiring additional attacks. The question moving forward is whether the administration has given any thought as to how to manage the fallout that comes from such a drastic action. This is the equivalent of the Iranians assassinating the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Uh, Senator, I saw you expressing skepticism. about. I mean, we've been litigating these president's embassies claim, and I think it's almost not even a litigatable claim because it just, right? I mean, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, it's not it's it's not true. It's not true. Donald Trump made it up. Senator Murphy, my first question for you is what did the president tell Congress about this attack and when and when did he do so? Well, as you know, the president told Congress nothing prior to the strike happening, which is in and of itself a violation of the law if the president's taking military action overseas without an authorization of Congress ahead of time. He's got to consult before he takes the action. He didn't do that. Since then, their explanation for why they did it has been changing almost by the day. At first, they said that they had you know, some vague intelligence that this Iranian general was planning an attack against the United States. Then when they couldn't produce anything specific, they suggested there were attacks being planned against four U.S. embassies. I've led the charge to uh, demand that the administration tell us exactly what the scope of that intelligence was, and they haven't provided us with any briefing. And I think the explanation is unfortunately pretty simple. The president made it up. There weren't specific attacks against embassies that were imminent. Uh, The president panicked because nobody was buying his initial explanation. And now we're left in this awful situation where I think most people know the president made up this alleged series of attacks that he claimed were imminent. And I just wish at this point the administration would cop to it, would just come clean uh, and say that it, it was fabricated by the president. And if it's not, then, you know, why are they wasting day after day with not giving us the actual intelligence that would support the claim that he's made. Right. Well, it feels like he's doing it to get reelected, which is what he sort of said that Obama was doing back when Obama was trying to get reelected. So I think there's something about him that belittles the intelligence of the American people. And it's always so frustrating. That aspect is always so frustrating to me. Well, and there's also this reporting that suggests he went after Soleimani because he needed to play to Iranian hardline senators 
who were going to be decisive votes on impeachment. Uh, and so if that's true, that he's you know, effectively putting our troops at risk overseas in order to win votes on an impeachment trial, I hesitate to say it's a new low, but that's what it feels like. Troops, millions of civilians that have been at war and in conflict in that region for, for decades. But I just want to back up for one second. And will you explain to us why it's so important that Congress approve specific military actions? Well, I listened to you know all of my Republican and conservative friends you know, talk about their belief in upholding the Constitution. They tend to only care about the sections of the Constitution that are convenient for their ideological positions. Yes. There is a section of the Constitution that says only Congress can declare war. And the reason for that is that you don't want that big a decision being made by one person. You don't want the American people to be shut out of a decision as to whether they and their sons and daughters are sent overseas to fight and die. So Congress has to be in charge of that decision. Uh, last week, in our view, uh, the president, the administration conducted a provocative, disproportionate airstrike uh, against Iran, which endangered Americans, and did so without consulting Congress. Iraq's parliament reacted Sunday by approving a resolution asking their government to oust American troops. I think we're seeing the huge ramifications of even one military strike, never mind a protracted war. The president you know, killed this one general and another Iraqi militia leader. And the consequences have already been pretty significant. At the top of the list is that we're getting kicked out of Iraq. We've got about 5,000 troops there that are fighting ISIS, and the Iraqis are throwing us out. And you know whether or not you think we should be there or not be there, the fact of the matter is we should leave on our terms. We shouldn't be sort of pushed out of the country in a moment of crisis. That's dangerous. So you know that's why the Constitution says Congress should have the say, because it just isn't safe to have one person you know, whether they're as unstable as Trump or, you know, as stable as Barack Obama making that decision themselves. Well, it's been super difficult to define a specific Trump doctrine, right, when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, he he cozies up to people like Putin and Kim Jong-un, and he makes these impulsive moves that are hard to figure out, like uh, abandoning the Kurds in Syria, you know, and it has totally damaged relationships with longstanding allies. So from what you can tell, what is the Trump foreign policy agenda? <laughs> no, they make it up as they go day by Ugh. day. And you're right. We have never been weaker in the world than we are today. Um, all our allies have left us. Our enemies are stronger. We've given bulletin board recruiting material to all the terrorist groups that you know, want to attack the United States. We obviously worry that the you know only consistent theme in the president's foreign policy is to you know use American foreign policy tools in order to enrich himself, in order to protect his reelection uh, interests, and in order to help his friends. The policy towards Saudi Arabia, you know, is hard to explain other than the family has a lot of present and future interests there. He obviously played with the Ukrainians to try to get them to help his reelection campaign. That's what impeachment is all about. So when it comes down to it, the Trump foreign policy is, you know, all about what's best for Trump, 
not what's best for this country or our security. Mike Pence said that Soleimani was linked to 9-11, and obviously we all know this isn't true. What do you think he was trying to accomplish there with that? I think part of what they've tried to do, and they did this in the classified briefing as well, is just you know convince Congress that Soleimani was a really terrible guy. Well, they didn't need to convince us of that. He was a really terrible guy. He ordered the killing of hundreds of Americans, but exactly. that's not the point. There's lots of really terrible guys all across the world. Soleimani's at the top of the list. But it's not legal for an American president to order an assassination of someone overseas without the approval of Congress. So I think Pence, you know, in just totally butchering the intelligence about Soleimani's involvement in the 9-11 attacks was just attempting to put more meat on the bones of a story that we already know. Soleimani's not a good guy. He's an enemy of the United States, but that doesn't mean the president has the legal justification to kill him. And again, this goes along with that theme where this administration belittles the intelligence of the American people. What do you think a progressive foreign policy in that region would look like and how would we structure that? Well, I've argued that there are you know, several elements to a progressive foreign policy. Uh, one of them is the subject of which we're speaking, which is that uh, we do not go to war. We do not take military action anywhere, but specifically in the Middle East, without a full public debate, without Congress being involved. And it's because you are so right. The American people are smarter than the foreign policy establishment in Washington thinks because they watched their sons and daughters be marched off to fight a war in Iraq that wasn't about making this country safe. Exactly. It was about settling old political scores. And so they are very wary of future military involvement in the Middle East and much more careful, frankly, than policymakers are here in the United States. Second, we've got to start building up tools to help protect our interests other than military tools. Uh, In the Middle East, for instance, Lebanon is a country that's super fragile today. They would benefit from American economic support, uh, democracy aid, but we don't really have that to offer because today we spend 20 times as much money on the military and the intelligence services as we do on democracy promotion, human rights, and smart power tools. And so to me, a progressive foreign policy isn't about withdrawing from the Middle East. It's about never going to war without the consent of the American people and finding other ways to try to help countries in need beyond sending them a couple thousand more American troops. Well, the House passed a bipartisan war powers resolution that restricts the president's ability to use the military without congressional approval. Why was that important if it's already stipulated in the Constitution? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Alyssa, because, you know, the war powers resolution that we've introduced and the House passed is just a restatement of current law. I mean, all it really says is you can't go to war with Iran without getting the prior authorization of the U.S. Congress. And so it's kind of amazing to me that so many Republicans are voting against this thing because it suggests they actually don't believe that Congress has any role in upholding our Article One responsibility. But because the president is so flippant about Congress's role to be played here because he has been so abusive of the Constitution, we need to pass this resolution to just make clear to the whole country and to the whole world that we still believe that it is Congress's responsibility to declare war, not President Trump's alone. Do you think that that has enough votes to pass the Senate? 
you know, you and I worked a lot on the Yemen War Powers Resolution. We successfully passed a resolution through the House and the Senate that would pull the United States out of the disastrous Yemen War. That was vetoed by the president, and we didn't have enough to override it. I think the same thing's going to happen here. I think we will have more than 50 votes, so it'll pass the Senate, but we won't have more than 67 votes. Um, That being said, I think it's still important to do. I think it's important to show that the majority, in a bipartisan way, in both the House and the Senate, still believe in the Constitution. Senator Murphy, are you ready for this last question? And I need you to answer from your heart and from your gut, okay? I am ready. Okay. Do you think that he used this conflict to distract from his impeachment? I will answer from my gut. And and my answer is, I, I don't know. Obviously, everything about the way that this president conducts foreign policy uh, suggests he's willing to put American security at risk in order to benefit himself personally. That being said, there is a long tail to this latest incident. The president has been engaged in a series of provocations with Iran that frankly predate the disclosures about Ukraine. And so a lot of us have been saying for a year and a half that we were going to have a military conflict with Iran. That was inevitable because of the way that Trump was acting. Mm. And so part of this, I think, was inevitable. This was this is going to be how it was going to eventually go down with Iran with an exchange of fire. But I also know that the president really doesn't think twice before using his foreign policy tools in order to help himself politically. So I wish normally my gut you know, tells me what the right answer is on this one. I have my suspicions, but I'm not sure. Well, Senator Murphy, thank you for spending the time with us and explaining this and all of your work. I appreciate you so much. I don't know how Americans can believe Trump. Has there ever been an Iranian who fired a shot in America to be called a terrorist? Has there ever been an Iranian anywhere in the world who beheaded anyone? It was Saudis who destroyed the Twin Towers. I've never been to America, but I've met a lot of Americans who visit. All of them see within a week that this image of Iran created by American media is not real. There is so much pain at home and abroad because of this long-term generational conflict that we just cannot seem to solve with the nations of the Middle East. It breaks my heart. The human suffering that results around the world from this failure is so much more than anyone should endure. The stories of children who have been forced to be refugees their entire lives, families who have lost everything they own, and entire cities reduced to rubble should be enough to force change. I mean, in this episode, we heard the anguish of a Syrian father who had just lost his children dead following a battle. And when we use words like targets and objectives, we lose sight of just how human the real victims are. We forget they are people. But how can any of us hear these stories, feel the pain of the Syrian father, 
crying over his dead babies and not be compelled to act immediately and forcefully to stop the suffering. Millions of people are dead. Millions. And what of the cost at home? What could we have done with the more than $6 trillion and the thousands of American lives we lost in these fights? This incompetence, this hatred, this nonstop drive to war hurts everyone, all of us. I hope we can all find power and purpose in this pain. I hope it's enough and we can elect competent, compassionate, and caring leaders who will finally break the cycle of violence. Thank you. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson, editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs, and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry 